Hello friends, Pastor Ian Graham here with you on a Monday. We had some technical difficulties from our gathering yesterday, so I am re-recording our teaching and look forward to opening this beautiful text with you today. So we'll start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul begins our section with therefore, which connects everything that he's about to say with everything that he said before in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. The previous section, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10, is seen in much of Western Christianity as the essence of the gospel. And as we saw last week, it is beautiful and stunning in its implication in God's rich mercy. But that section is often not connected with the section that immediately follows it, our section for today. And Paul's gospel is twofold. We are saved by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus the Messiah who fulfills the promises given to the Jewish people and that salvation creates a new humanity of liberated peoples from Jew and Gentile. And as he begins our teaching text for today, he begins specifically addressing the Gentile Christians, continuing the theme that has been present throughout this letter. Now I know we don't talk much in public about circumcision, but it's important for us to remember from the biblical framework, circumcision was simply a marker of the covenant. It was a way that the Jewish people marked their bodies and said that they are a part of this blessed people. They are a part of this people called by God. That their identity is not formed by the systems and cultures of the world, but rather is a gift that they have received from God. And that circumcision was a mark in the body that simply declared that covenant membership. And the Jewish people, prior to the revelation of Jesus, assumed that their circumcision as, as a part of a wider orbit of keeping the law, the law of Moses, the law of Torah, gave them a privileged status in the eyes of God. And Paul is, is subtly rejecting that claim. You notice in Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 13, when he talks of circumcision, he says, which is a work done in the body, work done by human hands. Paul is subtly saying that there is nothing done by works that can save you, not even circumcision. But we've all had that experience where we look down at others and we think that they are either deluded or they're doing it wrong. And we tend to look at people in those situations with a bit, an air of judgment. Now I know when I'm driving around, uh, this judgment is always close to the surface. I, I just, I feel like an accomplished driver. I feel like I'm a very aware and conscientious driver. I feel like I know what the left lane is for, that it's for passing. And if you're not passing, you're supposed to get out of it. If you're going slow, you should never be in it. And that drives a certain air judgment when I encounter people that in my mind are not doing it right. Now, legally, I'm correct, but often relationally, it does not bring out the best in me. And when the Jewish people looked at the Gentiles, they sort of saw in themselves 
the people that were doing it right. And the ways that the Gentiles, who were pagans, were doing it wrong were so abundant. First of all, they were worshiping all kinds of gods. They were worshiping gods made with human hands. Whereas the people who were Jewish and were part of that story knew that there was only one true God. And then oftentimes the way that the Gentiles behaved in culture and society, what they did with their bodies, how they gave themselves license to follow their passions was not in line with the Jewish expectations. So oftentimes it bred an air of judgment. And the Jewish people are having their paradigm reshaped as the story comes into clarity through the work of Jesus the Messiah. And this is what we see in Ephesians. But it was always expected that in some way, the blessing that was given to the Jewish people by the call of God would be extended to the Gentiles. If you look back at one of the foundational texts of the election of the nation of Israel as the covenant people of God, Genesis 12, beginning in verse 2, it says, I will make of you a great nation, as God says this to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was always expected that God would extend this blessing to the Gentiles. But throughout the story, it was expected that the Gentiles would receive this blessing by themselves becoming Jewish. By bearing the marks of circumcision, by keeping the law. If you read the New Testament, this is the first question that the apostles face as they consider the implications for Gentiles receiving the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is not just the Savior and the King of the Jewish people, but he's really the Savior and King of the whole world. In Acts chapter 15, a council is called where the apostles prayerfully deliberate. Do these new Gentile converts need to become Jewish? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to adhere to works of the law? And what they determine in that setting is that no. The Gentiles are, are free to stay you know, uh, physically as Gentiles. They're not to submit to works of the law as a way of marking their covenant participation. No, they're simply to uh, continue to be sexually pure, to remember the poor, and to uh, be a people who trust that there is only one God, that it, that God is revealed in Jesus the Messiah. And so much of the New Testament is paradigm shifting for both Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles looked down on the Jews in many ways prior to their coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. They, they, you know, their sense in a, in a place like Ephesus, the Jewish people would not have participated in the local cults and local um, idolatry. Specifically in Ephesus, the, the patron goddess was the goddess Artemis. And in Roman culture, there were so many gods. And it was often that a local god or a local host of gods was paid honor and homage as a way of, of establishing safety and security and prosperity for a city. And as the Gentiles looked at Jewish people who would refuse to worship any god but their god, and their god had no images that they could look at and say, what does your god look like? Because the Jewish people said that we're all made in the image of God. We are the image bearers, the icons. They would look at the Jewish people and just say, why can't you just go with the flow? Why can't you in some places worship the emperor? 
Why can't you bow down to the gods of our city as a way of securing prosperity for our city or, or ensuring that we don't incur the wrath of these gods? And so the Gentiles, much in the same way that the Jews would have often looked down upon them in judgment, the Gentiles had the same sort of animosity piled up towards their Jewish neighbors. And what Paul is writing about here in Ephesians chapter 2, and what he's writing about in places like Romans and Galatians, are how Jew and Gentile are to live together. Let's go on and see what he says, continuing in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. According to verse 15, Jesus has not only done away with circumcision as a marker of being a part of the saved covenant people, but also by works of the law. And in verse 14, it tells us that in doing so, he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, Paul, in this context, he has, when he thinks about a dividing wall of hostility, he has a, a very concrete wall in mind. The wall that separated Jew and Gentile in the first century temple in Jerusalem. The central place of worship for the Jewish story was the temple on the Temple Mount that was first built and conceived by Solomon that was later destroyed in 587, but it was rebuilt by Herod. And at this point in time in history, before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, the temple is in operation. And if you look at a graphic, a recreation of the layout of the first century temple, you would see that the, there is a court allotted to the Gentiles, that, that many Gentiles came to see in the Jewish story something of the true story of the world, and they wanted to devote their lives to that faith. And the Jewish people welcomed them, but only to a point. They were not allowed access to the inter, inner sanctum of the temple, and really that access was limited to only the high priest. And access is such an interesting thing as it regards to the temple because it gets more and more limited the more interior you go into the temple. But the Gentiles were always allotted this place on the exterior. And what Paul is saying when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility being broken down, he's saying that that wall that limits access based on your ethnicity or your culture has been broken down. That now the Gentiles and the Jews through the Spirit of God being poured out on Jew and Gentile alike, all have access to God because Jesus Christ has become our peace. He has reconciled all of us to God. He has united us in the power of His Spirit. And I love that Paul points out that not only is there a dividing wall, but there is a dividing wall of hostility. Again, we already referenced how you know it was common for Jew and Gentile to sort of look at one another. But we often see, even in our own world, where there is difference, there is fear, there is hostility, there is a sense of misunderstanding that often leads us to dismiss, to judge, to dehumanize others. 
You think about the hostility that's present in American culture, the hostility between Democrats and Republicans. I mean, it's, it's so rare in our culture for there to be constructive political ideas that are brought forth. Sadly, now our political discourse largely is just like a tennis match of hostility where both sides are pointing at the other, talking constantly about how terrible the other side is. And that is not constructive in any way. Or think about the horrors of racial hostility that still creep up with, with what seems like this you know, just terrible frequency. You know, as I'm talking to you, it's been over a week since a, a white supremacist gunman went into a grocery store in Buffalo and murdered 10 souls, black people, with the intent of killing them. Or just the next day, because we were still reeling from this news in Buffalo, it almost went without a, a ton of news media attention. A gunman went into a church, uh, a Taiwanese-American church in California, and shot and killed one person and injured several others. We see racial violence in our culture so often. There's hostility that is latent in our world. The Asian American Pacific Islander Foundation conducted a survey in 2022 in March uh, called the American Experiences with Discrimination Survey. And they surveyed people asking people of color how if they had uh, experienced a incident of racial hatred or even a hate crime within the last calendar year. And look at what they found. 19% of multiracial adults 17% of black adults, 16% of Asian American adults, 15% of Native American adults, 14% of Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander adults, and 13% of Latino American adults had all experienced some sort of incident of racial hatred within the last calendar year. According to a study by Barna conducted in the summer of 2021, self-identifying white Christians were significantly less likely to agree that there is a race problem in the United States than their black and Hispanic counterparts. And of those white Christians, these white Christians were also significantly less motivated to address those issues. This survey was conducted in the summer of 2021. Think about the events that transpired leading up to the summer of 2021. Think about the summer of 2020. The murder of George Floyd, uh, uh, you know, on the back and the heels of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and the murder of Breonna Taylor. All of these events had sparked this kind of flashpoint, you know, coupled with the global pandemic. It sort of put on full display the racial injustice that is present in our world. And if you look back at the response of many white, largely white evangelical churches in that first week following the death of George Floyd, there was a rush to, to have conversations. There was a rush to, to move into the work of, of talking about race because everybody was talking about it. And that was the summer of 2020. But according to the Barna study, by the summer of 2021, that energy that rush to move into this conversation had considerably dissipated. And it's such a shame. And to our sisters and brothers of color, I just want to say pastorally, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that it seems 
that the justice initiatives of the white evangelical church often move at the pace of the news cycle and often only pay attention to what the news cycle is paying attention to, that when something comes along that, that is more interesting or when just enough time has gone by and none of the wounds have been addressed or healed, that we turn our attention towards other things. And I'm sorry. And I think that, I, I hate what this suggests, is that the work of justice is only as urgent as the news cycle itself and that when the, the urgency fades, when the moment has gone by, that the work of justice has been put down as an optional extra, not a foundational part of what it means to follow the liberating king, King Jesus. And for many Christians, I get it. These, two, these things don't have much in the way to do with the gospel. But Ephesians 2, with this beautiful description of God's grace and mercy, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and then beginning this section on the wall that divides us, uh, being broken down in Christ, and Paul connecting all that with therefore, God creating a new humanity in him, says that this has everything to do with the gospel. That the gospel is twofold, and it's about the mercy of God, the gift of God that we receive. But in receiving that mercy, we become part of a new people. We become part of a new people where our neighbor's concern is our concern. And I speak to my white sisters and brothers right now from my office on a Monday. Friends, our sisters and brothers of color are crying out. They're saying there is a problem. They're saying that often that problem starts and is rubber stamped by our theologies and practices in our church. And we have Paul's words here saying that he has broken down the wall of hostility. That God is calling us in all the beauty and transformative power of the gospel to receive the grace that often comes with correction, that receives the grace that often comes with seeing things more clearly. Because the gospel is not only that which saves us. The gospel is the story that we live out collectively as a witness to the kingdom of Jesus. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously lamented that Sunday morning at 11 a.m. was the most segregated hour in the United States. And in the wake of the events of the summer of 2020, what we saw was that the culture that we live in was asking questions asking questions about what it means to address issues of racial inequality. So many people, I, I remember my email inbox, you know, like Levi's was sending me emails that Black Lives Matter, corporations and companies and cultures were trying to respond. And the culture was asking the question that the church is supposed to be the answer to. The reason we have books like Ephesians, Galatians, and Romans is because the gospel is not just about Jesus and how he has saved us, but it's about how we live together in light of this salvation. Our culture was trying to achieve what Mark Sayers calls the kingdom without the king. And in the face of the eruption of racial hostility so often, the church is an ineffectual witness. Not a sign of a different way, but simply a rubber stamp of the status quo. But what if? 
What if when the hostilities that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2 are present because the world, as Paul describes, is mired in slavery to the flesh and to the devil, the church of Jesus Christ, his body that Paul calls us, empowered by his spirit with Jesus Christ as our head, was a beacon of a different way. Our world is constantly asking the question that the church is supposed to be the answer to. Our fellowship that disarms hostility should be one of our greatest apologetics. But often, our churches look just like the world around us. N.T. Wright says that the ecclesia, which would be a great name for a church if you were to start one, is nothing short of a new version of the human race. Going back to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, it says his purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This is Jesus' purpose. He is our peace, and he makes peace. We all have access to the Father because of Christ's Spirit at work in us. So how do we begin to live out the implications of this gospel? Can we really succeed where so many have failed? I think, I think we can. But it will require all of us, especially me as the leader of this local church, to lay down our preferences and our privilege. So I want to offer just a couple thoughts on the ongoing work of the Spirit to disarm the hostility and division within us. First, the work of reconciliation and peace is first and foremost a work of the Spirit of God. Throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit of God is working to bring together divided peoples, tongues, ethnicities. At Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, Jewish people hear from all, from all over the world with divided tongues, hear the wonders of God proclaimed in their native tongue as they see tongues of fire descend. In Acts chapter 10, the Spirit of God brings Peter to the doorstep of Cornelius, and the first Gentiles receive the Spirit of God. To answer the question whether we want true reconciliation, peace, from all the scattered parts of our society— Paul leaves no doubt is to answer the question, do we want God's Spirit at work among us? We see time and time again where God's presence will depart where he is rejected. My friend John says that God's presence goes where he is wanted. And we have the invitation and the option to welcome the Spirit of God and all the power of peace and reconciliation to allow him to dismantle the hostility within us and between us, or we can reject God's Spirit and serve the small gods of our preferences and our comfort. The work of peace is a work of the Spirit. And just like the grace of God often just requires that we submit to the wind of the Spirit, to let the wind blow where it will blow and let it recreate that which we have torn apart. Second, we have to listen to one another. We have to give grace to one another. We have to bear one another's burdens and we have to fight for one another. Now, if that sounds like four points rolled into one, it is. But I'm drawing from Ephesians chapter 4 as Paul picks up this theme about peace 
He says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are one. The possibility of us being one is there because we are in Christ. To use Paul's refrain throughout Ephesians, we have been relocated from a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of our own selfishness, our flesh, a kingdom in subservience and slavery to sin and the devil. We have been relocated into a new humanity where the future, the sure and secure future of heaven has been brought into our present. And we are compelled to lay down our political allegiances, our preferences for things like music, style, our comforts, our defaults. We allow our blind spots to be exposed and we find freedom and repentance and forgiveness. When we listen to one another, we stand with one another because we are all part of the same body. And this will require so much from all of us. With all humility and gentleness, Paul says, this is how we maintain the bond of peace. We have to listen to one another. And I know I've seen so often over the last 10 years where our brothers and sisters of color will be saying that you know, to the larger church, this affects me in this way. And so often they are met with ignoring ears or patronizing cliches or denial of their experiences. And humility and gentleness as a mark of God's presence among us, among all of us, suggest what harm is there in listening. In Acts chapter 6, when a certain group, an ethnic group of widows are being ignored, they're being last in line to receive distribution, they raise that cry. And you know what the apostles do? They listen. They don't minimize their experience. They say, oh, tell me more about that. And then they change structurally, with all humility and gentleness. Paul says that we maintain this bond of peace with patience. And this is where I know that I have to, you know, and for, for many of us as, as, you know, kind of the more privileged group in, you know, our culture have to ask for grace. That we're not always going to do it right. That I, as a leader of a church, though I'd love to sit here and say because I've read you know, 20 books on the subject matter of, you know, the, the workings of race and how it, uh, the implications of it in the church and all these things, and I'm going to do everything right. And the fact is, I'm, I'm not. That my perspective is limited. That it's limited by my own preferences, my own uh, draw towards comfort, by my own sinfulness. And I'm just an example of the way that we have to ask for and show grace with patience. Paul says that we maintain it by bearing with one another in love. And this again goes back to that sense. When, when Paul describes the gathering of believers, he will often refer to it as a body, an organic whole, an entity. And I don't know about you, but when something is wrong with my body, I am constantly aware of it. When, when I have so much as a hangnail, I am aware of my body 
And, and what Paul, the genius of this, this symbol, this metaphor, describing all these people who have acknowledged the truth of the gospel of Jesus being brought into one body, is he's saying that what affects our neighbor affects us. And it doesn't matter if the news cycle has moved on. We listen to our neighbors. We serve one another. We become like Jesus, our king. We lay down our status and our privilege in order that we might serve one another. And sadly, so often we treat our body like the Gnostics. We act like our body is simply a spiritual whole, but it is a physical, holistic whole. And we have to bear one another. And lastly, Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We fight for one another. We show up for one another. If you've ever read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, you can hear the disappointment in his voice. That, not that he's been arrested, but the disappointment of what he calls the white moderate. Dr. King is so frustrated that for whatever reason, the white clergy who are supposed to be his brothers in Christ spend most of their time criticizing his methods. You can see that their failure to see, their failure to listen, so thoroughly disappoints Dr. King. He writes... I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro, his words, is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 4. The last point I want to make about this work, this work of peace and reconciliation, is that it's hard but beautiful. Clarence Jordan was a scholar, a farmer, who had a vision to live out the words of the Sermon on the Mount. He asked himself that dangerous question, what if Jesus meant what he said? He had experienced considerable dissonance in his own church upbringing between the claim that God loves everyone and the way the people in his Southern Baptist church treated people with dark skin. And in 1941, after opting out of military service and serving in inner city congregations, receiving a PhD in Greek, Jordan, along with his wife, Florence, founded the Koinonia Farm. Koinonia, the word translated fellowship, it means having in common in Greek. It's the word that was applied to the, the, the gathering of the early believers. They shared what they had in common. And the farm was to be a place of shared resources and equality in line with the way of Jesus. And one of the most stunning and dangerous ways they enacted this vision in the Jim Crow South was for white and black people to sit down to a table together. Now this practice did not take long 
for it to attract the notice of the local Ku Klux Klan and those associated with the farm began receiving death threats. But the farm continued to succeed. It continued to be a refuge for people who were trying to see evidence of a different way of being in the world. Oftentimes the farm, under threat, would, would see its livestock murdered, and even on several occasions, their farm market where they sold what they grew on the farm was bombed with dynamite. One day, a deacon from the local Southern Baptist Church, where several of the members of the farm belonged, came to, to Koinonia Farm. And he wanted to tell Clarence Jordan and tell the people of the farm that their members were no longer welcomed at the local Baptist church because they had tried to bring an Indian man to the gathering of the church on a Sunday morning. Clarence Jordan handed the deacon a Bible and offered to apologize immediately to the deacon for his sinfulness if the deacon could find in the, the book that he handed them any evidence of their offense. The deacon Exasperated, put the Bible back in Clarence's head. Don't give me any of that Bible stuff. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The gospel of Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved. We all have access to God through one spirit. And he has put to death the hostility and division that so latently exists among us and called us into his way. Let us examine what would divide us, where we need to repent, where our preferences try to stifle the work of the Spirit, where we think we can love God without loving our neighbor. We are the body of Christ that Jesus ransomed with his precious blood. His purpose was to create a new humanity. He has torn down every wall that divides us. Thanks be to God.